good afternoon and welcome to Let's Talk. The pastor is in. I'm program host Kip Allen. Let's Talk's a program for the Christian layman, the Lutheran who believes but, well, has questions. In short, the program's designed for someone just like me. There's a lot I don't understand. Now, it's not necessarily something soul-shaking. It might be just something that's been in the back of my mind. And I find that rather than getting into a deep theological discussion, chapter and verse, a casual front porch-style talk of the pastor's best way to understanding. And that's what this program's all about. Today's guest, Bill Swirla of Holy Trinity Christian Church, uh, Lutheran Church, look at that straight, Holy Trinity Lutheran Church in Hacienda Heights, California. I've got my questions. I'm sure you have yours. Now, you can send questions by email at any time to Let's Talk at KFUO.org, or you can call during the program in the St. Louis area, including Metro East, at area code 314-8210850, or toll-free anywhere in North America at 800-730-2727. Pastor Bill, welcome to the show. Hey, good to be back, Kip. Uh, hey, you know, last time I checked, I think I still have the word Lutheran on the signboard. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you have to understand, it's been a really long day. <laughs> and let, let, let's let's step back a little bit further. I, when was the last time that you ever saw a church named Holy Trinity Christian Church? I, I don't think, something tells me that that's kind of a... Um, a sort of an ecclesiastical oxymoron on the American evangelical landscape. I don't think, you know, I don't think you'd, you'd, I'd expect to see that. Hacienda Heights Christian Church, I think we have one of those. But Holy Trinity Christian Church, no, no not happening. No, no, no. It's kind of as rare as a St. Mary's Lutheran Church. I know there are some around, but, but yeah. I know. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get in trouble when we keep on this track, but, you know, it's yep. fun sometimes. Well, you, you, you invite me on the porch, you're inviting trouble, I'm just saying. Well, that's true. You've got your bread, i got my beer, we got, that's cool. Did you know, by the <laughs> by, that, that we consider, we brewers, and for those those in the audience who aren't, aren't aware of these, Bill's hobby is, is baking bread. Mine is Very making... Very much so. Yes, and mine is making beer and yeah. drinking it. And yes. Bread, and you eat your bread. Yeah, we, in moderation. Yeah. Okay. Well, did you know that we consider beer to be liquid bread? Of course. I mean, it's the same process. It's it's fermentation, yeast, grain. Uh, the only difference is that uh, you don't bake it. No, although the uh, the grains themselves are kilned. Ah, yes, they are. That's true. That's right. The, 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 that's right. Because you have to bring out grain does not have a lot of flavor inherently, and it's largely indigestible. I learned from, I think it's Michael Pollan. He has a good uh, four-part series called Cooked. But he, he makes the point that uh, if you had like a, a big bag of grain, uh, you could not live on that. You would starve to death. But, but if you can bake it, and the process of fermentation and baking makes it digestible, and you can live on it. It's actually a fascinating thing to study. I mean, the uh, it, you take a little a, a little grain of, of barley, which is what we use in brewing, and you know you break if you're to break it open, you know you, you just see the solid seed in there. Well, the thing is, it's really uh, starch that's encapsulated in in cellulose, 
Which is in yeah, the, yeah, which is indigestible. Now, yeah, I mean, it's, the grain is basically starch and protein, yeah. and and that's what bread is. Bread is starch mm-hmm. and protein, and uh, but you have to release that. It's yeah. it's very well encapsulated, and the, the I think there's if if I may can I may, may I wax biblical for a second here. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's kind of my job, you know. I do that. Uh, yeah. Back in Genesis three, you know, after the fall. The food of man is now called in Hebrew, lechem is bread. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your bread until you die. And I think there's a fundamental difference between eating fruit or nut, fruits and nuts, and eating bread. And we just articulated some of that. In order to get the nutritive value out of grain and make bread, there's a lot of work involved. There's there's milling, there's kneading, there's baking, and so this is this is the food that you work for. Whereas fruits and nuts are simply gathered; they're self-contained; they're edible. Well, that's now, I suppose big, that's one of the big differences between people and animals. We're the only creatures that actually prepare our own food. Yeah, could we cook? Uh, yeah, you, there, you might argue that there are some very rudimentary forms of cooking in the animal kingdom, but not to the extent. That we do not not to the extent of say four course Italian dinner. I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I had Vietnamese last night, so it was pretty good. I'd never had Vietnamese before, so oh, Vietnamese is very very good. It's it's really different than its Asian counterparts. We're we're mostly associated with uh, Chinese American, uh, not really even Chinese, but Chinese American. But when you get into Southeast Asia. That's a very different kind of cuisine entirely. Different flavors hit you. It's very good. I like Vietnamese. Yeah, yeah my brother spent a lot of time in Thailand, and he uh, he just oh yeah yeah he raves about Thai oh, food. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. No, the Thailand, Vietnam, Malaysia. The, the these are some of the. I think this is some of the best uh, that Asia has to offer because they mash up. They they take elements from Chinese and Japanese, and then they kind of mash it up, and and they don't hold back on the spice either. They, oh no, they, no, no, they, no, no. They like to bring the heat. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't like my food to hurt me. I draw a line there. <laughs> but, you know, my brother also was, uh, spent a lot of time in the Philippines. And that's what he learned about balut. What's that? That is a fermented duck egg. Oh, oh, oh yeah. Okay, yeah, I know what you're talking <laughs> about. Yeah. <laughs> and it's left to Germany. I mean, it, it, it's actually like about two-thirds, three-quarters of the way to hatching before it's fermented. And he said yeah. they, they, the street vendors would just sell these things. And yeah, they just that... knock the tip off and suck the yeah. embryonic duck. Uh, I've seen it on TV. I have no desire to go oh, there. Oh, absolutely not. Every, every culture has its form of lutefisk haggis you know the the thing that it's like a test of your cultural manhood are are you going to eat this or not and it kind of forms that hard cultural barrier is oh you may like you know you may like thai food but you ain't liking this (laughs) see and that's kind of cool i i to to each his own i wonder uh does america does american cuisine if there is such a thing does does it have that equivalent that what and what would it be well uh actually um when i was talking to some israelis uh one thing we do that they they find absolutely incomprehensible is gravy oh yeah okay i get that yeah gravy is kind of gravy is a way to extend and hide yeah, uh, it 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 basically allows you to sort of rehydrate overcooked meat because mm. you know mom always overdid it in the oven and and um, it also allows you to stretch things because then you get the, all that starchy stuff and and that so you can 
take a little bit of meat and stretch it just a little bit further. But really, what's a pot roast without gravy? I, oh, I, 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 don't, I don't get that. Absolutely. Mashed potatoes with gravy. The other yeah. thing that, I, that I, I've read that foreigners simply do not get is uh, biscuits and gravy. Well, yeah. Now that's that's a southern thing. I yeah. think more than anything. I I, I think well, it's no. We southern. offer it here in our cafeteria every morning for breakfast. Well, <laughs> yeah. Well, cafeteria food is another thing entirely. <laughs> that that's yeah. It's Actually, kind of, that's our food a, here is pretty good. That's a staple of cafeteria. That's why students at cafeterias always put on about fifty pounds by the time they hit senior <laughs> years. So, yeah, I have a weakness for really good biscuits and gravy. But you have you better be bringing some good quality sausage to the gravy and that gravy better not taste like basically flour in suspension i I want a good roux there i I want some i want some some good fat and sausage happening and a good biscuit that's not easy to make i'm a baker remember the the biscuit has to be really crispy on the outside but very fluffy and it has to be hot so are we going to talk food all hour? I mean, I'm, I'm game. I'm good. I can go there. I could talk food all day if you want. But, I can too, uh, but I'm not sure what the theological implications that are going to be. Oh, oh, the theology of food is rich. Ooh. To- it, no, it, it really is. Maybe we should file that away. I don't know. But the theology of food is really rich because, as I indicated, uh, the Bible begins with food, uh, the fruit of the trees. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, uh, it carries it post-fall, the bread that you eat by the sweat of your brow. Uh, it's carried over into the Messianic meal, the Feast of Fat Things and Fine Wines on the Mountain of the Lord, right? Well, Passover meal, communion meals of the sacrifices. And what was uh, what was Jesus' first miracle? Water into wine, wedding yeah. feast, absolutely. Yeah. Fed five thousand in the wilderness. Yeah. Never missed. Never missed a party. I, I, you know, I mean, when you read the Bible, <laughs> I think every time he's teaching, he's teaching at table. You know, Doctor Arthur Just, uh, whom I'm sure you've heard of. Uh, yes. I mean, he made a whole thesis and career out of the idea of. Uh, uh, table fellowship. That's the context in which yeah. Jesus teaches. And how much of that is cultural today? Family is gathered around the table. Uh, you know, major life events happen at table. You have a wedding and you got to have a reception, got to, got to feed all your guests, have, have a good time, have a feast. So yeah. it all goes together. And the Bible ends in a feast, the marriage feast of the Lamb and his kingdom, which has no end. So well, plenty of food in the Bible. Well, speaking of wedding feasts and all. Ah. Well, we find they finally did it overseas. Uh, my favorite <laughs> one of the royal Harry family, Harry and Meghan. Yeah, I always liked Harry. I gotta yeah. say, I always got a kick out of kick out of Prince Harry. I understand when he, when he was a toddler around the uh, castle, he was referred to as Harry the Horrible. And you know, he, oh yeah, yeah, you he can was kind of the troublemaker and the you guy who tell. was always doing this and doing that. And now the the guy's actually settled down. Well, he's got red hair, so right away you know that he's going to be kind of a little bit off center. And uh, <laughs> my late uh, wife was a redhead. I can tell you some stories. Yeah, right, exactly. Uh, but but yeah, Harry and Harry's second son, second son to royalty, to mm-hmm. the heir to the throne, or the second heir. Yeah. Uh, what are you going to do for an encore? What can you do? So he becomes kind of the people's prince. That's an you interesting know? phrase. Yeah, I, I think you're right because I think a lot of people. You know, who, who can relate really to Prince William or Prince Charles? Well, nobody likes Prince Charles. No. Uh, Prince William is noble and respectable, and, and he really fits the paradigm of the first son. 
Uh, he's prim. He's proper. Everything is in line. Uh, his wife is uh, very beautiful, but very proper. Yeah. She re- she really she's got all the little details of public royalty down and and has uh, perfectly proper and gorgeous children too so it it just all kind of fits in but Harry is kind of the wild hair he's the second son uh, like in the parable of the prodigal son, he's the one that doesn't get the land. He gets the he gets the money, and so what does he do? He goes and he spends it all wild living. Of course, that's what second sons do, you know. Hey, I'm a second son, so you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, don't yeah. You? But I mean, I I could see myself going pub hopping with Harry. I couldn't picture me doing it with there. William. You've proven my thesis. See, I'm a first son, and so I get William. It's like you know, he's doing he is doing what he's expected to do. And uh, and Harry, you know, expectations are lower. He's second son, and he's got doesn't have a lot to lose. So he marries an American. Oh yeah, an and actress, a divorced American. A divorced American. Remember a hundred years ago, or less than that. That, that oh, people, the abdication was it <laughs> Edward the Seventh. That's right. People have given up their throne for love. So uh, yeah, this. But it's, so it has a, a a kind of a mischievous uh, undertone to the romantic thing. Mm-hmm. And it's 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 great, and she's very beautiful, but in a non-British way. So she doesn't have that kind of that pasty anemic, anemic look that uh, people from Great <laughs> no. Britain have. So it yeah, this is this is interesting too. And and Britain, I'd I'd heard time and time over listening on the radio how the demographics of Britain have changed markedly with immigration. And so she's she has a lot of symbolic value in that sense. As royalty, royalty in Britain is symbolic. They 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 reign, but they don't rule. Yeah, and you know it. Actually, there are two questions. Really, this whole royal wedding thing has has raised in my mind. <clears throat> One is why should we as Americans be concerned about a royal wedding? And obviously, <laughs> we do. I mean, people were watching it. And the other is, why should we as Lutherans be concerned, or what should we as Lutherans learn from an Episcopal Anglican wedding ceremony? Yeah, the, the great questions. You know, why are we fascinated? Uh, we we made our decisive break with royalty in 1776, declaring our independence from the despot uh, who dared to tax our tea. And so... Yet we retain this fascination, and I think there is a fascination in royalty. I was having a great conversation with a dear friend of mine about this the day after, and we came to this conclusion that we don't have enough symbolism that unites us as a nation, that carries forward our values, our traditions, our national identity. So what do you and I rally around? We rally around the flag. We rally around the national anthem, a song that we can't sing very well. <laughs> we we rally around the military, although we didn't in Vietnam. We tend to today, and we did in World War II. But we rally around the flag. It's like the NFL demonstrated that. They recognized the, the symbolic value of the flag in the national anthem, and they told their players to knock it off because it's bad for business, because the NFL is a business. It's a corporation. And But they recognize the symbolic value of that. But in Britain, they don't care so much about the flag. You ever notice how they wear the flag as clothing? They do all yeah, kinds I of have. things with their flag. And they don't understand our flag piety. Oh, you know, I've, I've run into more Europeans, especially, who, who visit the U.S., and they are astonished how many people fly the flag outside their homes. Yes. But what they rally around is the Queen. 
is the throne, royalty. See, that that hails back to the great old days of, of British domination, the colonial era. Uh, they commanded the high seas. They had they basically had seats of government all over the place. Their fingers in every pot, and so that's their continuity to the past. And it becomes kind of symbolic of their national identity. That's why these people turn out in droves to watch Harry and Meghan ride down the street in a horse-drawn carriage, uh, ridden by guys with headgear and plumage. It's all irrelevant to the modern world, but that's precisely the point. It's it's bringing up your history, your national identity. And and so it's it's deeply patriotic in ways that I think we only scratch the surface in our country. There's deep patriotism that goes with royalty. Well, I was discussing uh, you know, a, a Dutch friend of mine uh, a couple of years ago uh, was saying he simply could not understand. He could not get the antipathy that Americans had toward the constant the monarchy. You know, the there was a the, the Dutch have a monarchy. And uh, they had Queen Wilhelmina during the war, which was, was her big symbol of resistance. And he just he just didn't get it. He said he couldn't imagine his country without a monarch, and he didn't understand uh, why we are so disdainful of the concept. Yeah, it, it, it does puzzle them. And I think it's rooted in the American Revolution, in the American spirit of revolt and independence. We are, revolution is in our DNA and we admire the underdog, the rebel. We all have a little anti-authoritarian streak in us. And you have to recognize that when we made that break with British, with the British crown, we basically made a decisive break with the notion of the divine right of kings to rule. Because now we were saying that we're going to elect officials to a temporary office. And if anything, our the the symbolic head of our government is not a person. It's not the president. It's not the Congress. It's the Constitution, yes. which is which it's enshrined as a sacred document in Philadelphia, uh, underneath a rotunda depicting the bodily assumption of George Washington, no less. But but it takes on deeply religious tones. This is our rallying document. But it's a curious thing: we as a nation rally around a text and a flag. Whereas the Brits and our, our Canadians are a little bit like this, too. They have the luxury of admiring royalty from afar. So they have all the emotional perks of royalty, but they don't have to put up with the nonsense and the expense so much. So they kind of like that. But um, they rally around the person of a queen. It's more concrete. And I, I, I understand how this appeals to us. I, we are concrete creatures. We like concrete things. And so, you know where I would uh, make a parallel is mm. Roman Catholicism. The unity of the Catholic Church is not found in texts, Council of Trent, creeds, even the scriptures. The unity of the Catholic Church is, is, is found in the Pope. And so they rally around the Pope, and that gives a concrete identity to a Catholic that a Protestant can't get. We rally around a text, Augsburg Confession, Book of Concord. Well, now, a lot of countries have an official religion, even even the U.K. does. And uh, I think, isn't uh, one of Queen Elizabeth's title is uh, the head of the uh, head of the Anglican Church? Yeah, that, but that's a different smoke, though, because uh, really the church is kind of subservient to the state. 
because the great Elizabethan compromise was we can't fracture the nation because some of us are Calvinists and some of us are Catholic. And so we'll find a middle way, a way that the two can exist without giving up their favorite stuff. And that's where you get high church, low church. A low church Anglican is Calvinist. A high church Anglican is, is Catholic. And they just agree to disagree, meet in the middle, and, and their unity is being British. Their unity is, is the state church. And that's why you have this weird juxtaposition at the royal wedding of all these royals who are clearly bored to death in yeah. church. Uh, yeah, somebody, somebody's got to instruct the royal family how to pretend to stay awake during a 15-minute sermon. <laughs> I, I, you know, I thought Lutherans were bad. This was just ridiculous, all the nodding. Some people are just openly snoring, you know, and <laughs> and they kind of missed a fairly decent message in the process. But, <laughs> but, but you get that weird juxtaposition of church and state, which we Lutherans uh, kind of, it just, it causes, like, causes our brains to vibrate when in the middle, of, or no, it's not in the middle, is after the service proper, but they turn and they sing "God Save the Queen," uh, which is it's not a national anthem, but it, it's it's you know it's a prayer for the Queen uh, to the Queen. Uh, and I have to admit, it was quite a moving moment. I, I concluded two things. I, I admire the fact that they all know the words by heart and sing it. They don't just kind of stand there, including the men. Do you notice how British men sing? What the heck is wrong with our men? You know, three quarters of my men in church don't sing. They don't even open the hymnal. Oh, that's one of the fa- my favorite parts of the church is singing. I know, but I'm not seeing a lot of that going on. So I don't know what's wrong with the men when it comes to singing. But second, uh, do you notice how? Um, oh, the thing I noticed was that tune really belongs to them. We should not corrupt it with my country, tis of thee. Just lose that, forget that. They own that. Let them have it. It's really cool. But it's cool in that context. My opinion. Take it or leave it. Well, you know, we took our national anthem from one of their drinking songs. Yeah, that's true. but <laughs> And probably appropriately so, given your hobby. But So as long as we're talking about royal weddings and, and, and whatnot, let's give, let's give a nod to the music. Great hymns. Yeah. And they sang. The men were singing. Even Charles was, his lips were moving. At times, and uh, but that's they, they we knew sang. He was alive. Yeah, uh, they kind of went brain dead during the sermon, but they were singing, and those were good hymns. We know them too; they're right out of our playbook. Oh yeah, that that's one of the similarities I think between uh, between uh, Lutheranism and Anglicanism, Episcopalianism is we do have a reverence for music. Well, we have a we're we're tied in tight with the Anglicans as English speaking Lutherans because a lot of our hymnody comes from the Anglican Church. I don't know I forgot the percentages, but it's probably upwards of forty percent of TLH, the nineteen forty one hymnal, is straight out of English hymnody in the Episcopal Church. Uh and so we you know and they bring the heavyweights like uh Ralph Vaughan Williams. Or that lovely choir piece, If You Love Me, Keep My Commandments, uh, by Thomas Tallis. Uh, they bring some real musical heavyweights to the table in English. So you don't have this this awkward fit where we have translated texts jammed into uh, tunes that don't quite fit. Mm. So English hymnody works really well. Thomas Cranmer. Uh, a lot of our prayers that we use in the Lutheran Church are straight out of Cranmer's Book of Common Prayer. The 1888 Common Service Order that is the basis of, of the TLH liturgy has its roots in Anglican chant. 
its musical roots. So we we have we're we're really tight with the Anglicans in that regard, and that's why some people don't actually see much of a difference between the two. Interesting. I hadn't thought of that. Although it does make sense. I mean, for example, Amazing Grace, we sing it all the time in church. That's that's an, a, a, is an Anglican song. Yeah. I think we, I, 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 I'm open to being corrected. I'm always open to be corrected, mm-hmm. but good luck. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, but I think we sing that text to a different tune than they do. It goes by about five different tunes. Oh, yeah. Uh, but the John Newton text, uh, the the former slave trader, become Christian. Uh, and a funny thing, he didn't give up slave trading immediately. But you know, fill in the blanks how you will. But the tune we use, I believe, is a Southern Harmony. Uh, it's from the collection of tunes of, of Southern Harmony. I may be wrong there. I I have, I have to look at my footnotes, and I know there are people who know this really well. But I think the tune that we associate with Amazing Grace is not the one that they use. I wasn't sure if they didn't know that. Yeah. So uh, I loved the, of course, the Anglican choir. And 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 the choir boys can sing descants any last stanza they want in my book. I hate descants personally, but when they do it, they got it. They own it. I'll take it. It's fine. It's glorious. Uh, so, But you can't beat choir boys for... Uh, that kind of thing, and the black gospel choir. Let's let's just pause and admire what a what a what a. I don't think that chapel saw that much energy in a long time. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> and and watching the royals kind of looking at each other like, what is this? We've never heard such things. Now you know, okay, stand by me in a wedding. All right, you know we we know the spiel. But I'll I'll say this in on your show. If you bring that choir to sing Stand By Me, you can sing it at your wedding, too. I'm not going to say a word. I'm just going to sit back and tap my foot and say, go sing it, sing it. Okay. Well, Bill, we got to take a little bit of a break here. But as soon as we come back, there's a lot more to talk about. And I also want to get into a little bit of the sermon that was given and the Americanization, to a large extent, of that service. Very, very interesting stuff. This is Pastor Matt Youngblood Clark. And this is Pastor Jolly John Lukomsky. Matt, I'm trying to think what would be a good theme verse for uh, wrestling with the basics, like John 3.16? Well, I think I've got one, John. Yeah? Uh, How about Acts 2, verse 15? What is it? For these people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only 9 in the morning. That's perfect. All right, now, there's no time for foolishness. Wrestling Wrestling with with the the basics. basics. 9.05 Saturday mornings on KFUO. Where we take God's word seriously, but we don't take ourselves too seriously. The Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, on behalf of Concordia Plan Services, Lutheran Housing Support Corporation, Concordia University System, Lutheran Church Extension Fund, the LCMS Foundation, and Corporate Synod, daily reaches out to our members and partners, working together to support our local, global, and international ministries, church workers, and LCMS initiatives at large to carry the mission forward and to serve each other in love. Opportunities to serve, lcms.org careers. This is a test of the emergency alert system.
This has been a test of the emergency alert system. Hi, I'm Jay Ashcroft. Here at the Secretary of State's office, we take the integrity of our elections seriously. Missourians agreed and passed Constitutional Amendment 6. Missouri's new photo ID law is now in effect. Have questions about the new voter ID law or need to register to vote? We're here to help. Visit showittovote.com or call 866-868-3245. Remember, if you're registered to vote, you can vote. Sponsored by the Missouri Secretary of State's Office. The Blank Bible, as it became known, is anything but blank. The Blank Bible was Jonathan Edwards' own 18th century version of a study Bible. He took his Bible, unbound it, and put a blank piece of paper between each of the pages for his notes, then had it all rebound into one new book. Ingenious at a time when study Bibles with wide margins for notes were unheard of. Jonathan Edwards, a New England Puritan, is credited by some as one of our greatest American scholars. His blank Bible, a treasure for scholars and students today. It's on display in the Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library at Yale University. Create your own blank Bible or use one of the almost limitless study Bible options available to engage with this book of books. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible. Well, welcome back to Let's Talk. The pastor is in. I'm host Kip Allen. My guest today is Pastor Bill Swirla from Trinity Lutheran Church in Hacienda Heights, California. You want to join our conversation, you can email us at uh, let's talk at kfuo.org. Or call us in the St. Louis area, including Metro East at area code 314-821-0850. Or anywhere in North America, toll free at 1-800-730-2727. So, Bill, what would you think of the sermon? Oh, we're jumping right to the sermon. Well... The sermon, the the, the Bishop Michael Curry, a Chicago native, I might add, so he's uh, one, of, uh, one of my tribe... Uh, I have to add that I didn't. I didn't watch the wedding live. I'm not going to get up that early. I, although I think I was up that early because I was driving home from Fort Wayne to. I was driving from Fort Wayne to Chicago on my way home later that morning. So I was listening to lots of discussion about weddings and royal weddings and whatnot. But I didn't get to actually watch the the ceremony until the next day. And I watched it on DVR, like I watched the Super Bowl. So you can oh, well, that's stop. what I did too. I wasn't going to get up that early to yeah, see. Yeah, so you can stop, play things over again. So I actually uh, watched the sermon in part, at least a couple of times. Um, and so, in summary, what did I think? Uh, I, in, in terms of you know, and I'm a preacher, so I think about these things at many levels. In terms of uh, rhetorical style, and rhetoric is very important as a preacher. Um, I think he gets eleven out of ten. Yeah. Uh, because he brought a, an interesting combination of gravitas, and, you know, he, there was seriousness, but there was joy, there was liveliness. One got the distinct impression the preacher believed what he was saying, and and I think he rather enjoyed being out of his normal element in this rather staid and and stuffy 
uh, sort of Anglican royal thing. So I think he enjoyed the the contrast of that, and and he was clearly having a good time. The guy behind him wasn't the the guy in charge of the service with the really bad vestments. Uh, it, you could you could tell he was just kind of counting the minutes. Uh, I, I heard something back channel that he was only allotted six minutes and he took something like 13 and a half so some of that irritation that you see is i think he might have exceeded his contracted agreement (laughs) as happens when you stick a preacher never tell a preacher you only have five minutes that's just a um in terms of content i um i i'm not going to hold him to lutheran standards because he's not lutheran but I would give him about a mm, eight and a half or nine out of ten. I, I thought it actually, as an occasional sermon, given the occasion, the audience, and and what he was working with, I, I think in terms of content, he did quite well, in my opinion. I know there are a lot of people who are saying, oh, you know, needs more law, needs more gospel, needs to sound more Lutheran, but he's not Lutheran. And, and I'm just listening to it as, as a preacher, listening to a fellow preacher. Well, I was a little taken aback. I, mean, I understand this, the theme of, of his of his sermon was love. Okay, fine. God is love. Get it. But this was also a wedding between a man and a woman. And he didn't really address, uh, He didn't, in my mind, he didn't really address the, um, address the couple. That's a really interesting point. I, I've not seen that come up in terms of the the social media criticism of it but i think that's an interesting point when i preach at a wedding the the focal point is is the gift of marriage and the couple in front of me and then we bring in these elements that inform and shape their wedding as baptized believers so you know the redemption of christ the marriage of christ and the church and all that but it's it is really focused on these two who are exchanging their vows of marriage. They're marrying each other. So that is the occasion, which makes it an occasional sermon. He kind of used it as sort of a bully pulpit, although not really. I don't think he really was pushing much of an agenda besides the usual social justice agenda that you're going to hear uh, in the Episcopal Church. Anyway, I don't know how the Anglican Church is on that, but I've been to enough Episcopal services to know you always quote um, Bishop Desmond Tutu no. or yeah. Martin Luther King Jr. You always have to quote them. They're like, you know, they're, they're like Martin Luther for us. And you're always working the themes of social justice. So peace, hunger, poverty, uh, those kinds of themes. Not that the Bible is opposed to these. Sometimes, sometimes <laughs> I listen to the criticism. I said, um, hmm, "Has anybody ever read the Book of Amos before?" Uh, he seems to have a <laughs> word or two on this. Um, but yeah, you're right. He he treated them almost as sort of Spe- not there spectators. At they most. were. Let's uh, f- a couple of footnotes. Okay. Loved that they sat. Loved that they sat. I, I've encouraged couples to sit. I love that. And I think this wedding is significant for what it teaches. They stuck with the traditional liturgy, which expressed the biblical and traditional understanding of marriage beautifully. We use the same words. We get that right out of their playbook. And uh, the intent and purpose of marriage, its, its origins in God, uh, so the the liturgy kind of formed a really good 
a matrix, if you will, or a context for the sermon. The sermon's never standalone. The sermon is always in the context of its surrounding hymnody and liturgy. So he was in really, really good company, whether that was witting or unwitting or just protocol, I don't know, but it worked out beautifully in that regard. Well, it it was, but um and and I have to say I agree with you on there on the uh, on Harry and Megan sitting. I mean, that was a uh they're a they're a handsome couple to begin with, and there he they was. They really you know, are. Yeah, they, his full uniform with his. Oh wealth, yeah, and she just knock a you know just just drop dead gorgeous in that dress and the tiara she had. My gosh. Well, and that was a that was a um, that had tradition behind it. That was some I, I forgot which queen. I'm not big on keeping the. I don't have the. Um, the the scorecard for royalty so but that's somebody's that's somebody's royalty era there um let's give another nod of approval to the dress okay because uh all too often as as a pastor i cringe at what some brides come down the aisle wearing it's like you know please ladies save it for the wedding night (laughs) and and this was modest it was simple it was elegant and i i predict that 20 foot long trains are going to be kind of the order of the day for a while where you know the bride is standing in the chancel and the train is going out the back door of the church yes. I, I i'm expecting that but if if that's where they're going hey i'm all for it especially if you have these cute little kids kind of trying to handle the uh i also like the little parade of kids behind her i thought that was kind of cute that um, used to be tradition. See, th- this gets to why are two guys, uh, two you know older guys talking about a wedding? This is kind of what are we doing on this porch? And and one reason I'm interested is high profile weddings set a tone. And whether we know it or not, the American wedding, what some people think is a Christian wedding, is really the Vanderbilt wedding of the 1920s covered in Vogue magazine. And so whenever there is celebrity, royalty, high society, whenever there's a lot of publicity and a wedding or just the soap operas, what they see on TV, some prominent TV wedding, a staged wedding, this shapes what brides and mothers of the bride and wedding coordinators, that's the unholy trinity in a wedding, the bride, the mother of the bride, and the wedding coordinator, this shapes what they want, their expectations. So I'm watching like a hawk, not for content so much, just what bright idea are they going to be promulgating on us now? And I, I left this ceremony rejoicing because this was good. The, this This was a sort of by-the-book wedding, and and I, I would have been happy to be a part of that one. And it, it was very dignified the way it was done. And, and one thing, though, I noticed that they were doing the uh, the women, the hats. You don't see that in America. Oh, I haven't seen hats like that since the Kentucky Derby two weeks before. Yeah, well, that's about the only time we But do nobody it. had mint juleps. You know, they might have been a little happier had they had a mint julep or two before <laughs> they showed up. But yeah, the hats. I think that's. I think that's um, standard requirement in in these kinds of things. I can't imagine some of these women actually wear hats, natively speaking. But I think that's a royal 
Somebody, somebody who's an Anglophile would have to fill us in on that well, one. Well, maybe but it's I, European. You notice that uh, uh, Melania oh, yeah. Trump was uh, wearing that that hat when uh, when uh, the president and she were were yep. with the, the French president and his wife. You know, uh, and <laughs> Melania is always perfectly adr- perfectly dressed for every occasion. I don't care what it is. Yeah, that's true. I mean, she just every time it's just ten out of ten, nailed it exactly right. You know. Um, I do know that when we toured Italy, every time we went into a cathedral, there were big signs: no shorts, no flip flops, no nothing off the no exposed shoulders. Uh, they, and they didn't require the women to wear hats, but I noticed that a lot of the Italian women certainly did. That when they stepped into the church, they they put a scarf on their head, or they had a hat or something. So I think there is a European custom in churches, no matter what you believe, as a sign of respect. Well, I think you know it's almost like the uh, you know like with the Jewish tradition where the 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 wearing of the skull cap is to, is to show respect to God. That's a funny one, and I've never filled in the blank. That's the men; they wear the yarmulke. Uh, whereas uh, in First Corinthians, uh, Paul urges that the women cover their heads in worship uh, as a sign of respect uh, for the angels, for authority, and and there's a lot of ink spilled over two things. Does it apply today, and what does it exactly mean then? Uh, but I, I let's not burn too much airtime on that here. <laughs> but but you see a carryover that to that in in the wedding. I remember when I went to church, and my parents' generation, mom always wore a hat to church. Uh, yeah, mine did too. I remember that. But you know, and one of the things that, that I think will be interesting with uh, with this wedding, you know, with the, with uh, Harry and Meghan, and with uh, with William and Kate too, for that matter, is the British have the British royal line has had some problems with their marriages. Uh, yeah, it's been it's been bumpy. It has it's, been. It's been very bumpy. Uh, uh, Elizabeth and Philip have been together for you know since God created the earth. I think. Oh man, they're looking ancient at this point. Well, I don't know really how long are. that's going to go. But but yeah, no, they're they're kind of that other generation. Yeah. The the royals are not immune. To the pressures of society, yeah. just like the church yeah. isn't. But their children, you know, who are pretty much like like our generation, you know, they had uh, Charles, Anne, and uh, Andrew, and all three of them had divorces. That's and, right. and outside flings and the whole That's thing, right. scandalous. Um, William seems to be pretty much of a straight arrow. Harry's had sown his wild oats, and, <laughs> and we'll see how it goes. I, I I pray and wish them well, and and as we do any couple that marries, right? Absolutely. And uh, hey, let's get back to the sermon just for a second yeah, let's here, do be- that. because um, you know I I am aware of what's said on social media and whatnot, and some people complained about all the love talk, the all you need is love, and it sounded more like a Beatles song than anything. Uh, and yet, it's really very much in the spirit of First John. You know, God is love, and the children of God love God, and they love one another. If you don't love your brother, you are not of God. These are this is this is really the whole spirit of John's first epistle. And he he both quoted it and alluded to it. But the other criticism is not enough Jesus, as though the way you gauge a sermon is you, you weigh it for the Jesus content. Yeah. Uh, I, I isolated the Jesus content. If you don't mind, just read a paragraph or two of it. Because Go for it. This is what he said, and he is alluding to 
uh, the slaves, which is fine, uh, because, and he does that honestly, uh, and he talks about the dynamic power of love and the power that it has to transform. And then he says of, of the slaves of America's antebellum South, they explained it this way, they sang a spiritual, even in the midst of their captivity. It's one that says there is a balm in Gilead, a healing balm, something that makes things right. I thought he was going to break out into song, <laughs> uh, which would have been very cool, but he didn't. He, but he spoke it in verse. There's a balm in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There's a balm in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. And one of the stanzas actually explains why. They said, if you cannot preach like Peter, if you cannot pray like Paul, you can tell the love of Jesus how he died to save us all. We sing that, too. Hark, hark the voice of Jesus crying. Oh, that's the balm of Gilead, the way of love. It's the way of life. They got it. He died to save us all. And here comes my favorite line. He didn't die for anything that he could get out of it. Jesus did not get an honorary doctorate for dying. He didn't. He wasn't getting anything out of it. He gave up his life. He sacrificed his life for the good of others, for the good of the other, for the well-being of the world, for us. And that's what love is. Love is not selfish and self-centered. Love can be sacrificial, and in doing so becomes redemptive, and that way of unselfish, sacrificial, redemptive love changes lives, and it can change the world. So what he does there is he anchors this love talk in the sacrificial love of Christ, and he does it quite well. Well, he also uh, pointed out um, some things about Martin Luther King, who I think really, really got it. Uh, I look at, you know, I grew up in that era. I vividly remember it. And what King did that was so utterly remarkable was not that he conquered his opponents. He converted them. I, um, on my, that car drive home, or on my way home, Fort Wayne to Chicago, then flew from Chicago to L.A., I heard an interesting NPR segment on movements and how movements are crystallized and why we can't seem to get a movement today. And the answer from these people was that we lack imagination. We're, we're not concrete in our movements. So we have movements around save the planet, save the whales, save, you know, save the earth from global warming, uh, social justice and world hunger. But these, these don't, these don't motivate. They don't galvanize people. And they evoked the, the speech and the imagery of Martin Luther King on that day when he talks about, I had a dream. And his dream was not social justice. His, not dream, his dream was not racial equality. Do you remember how he put it? I have a dream that one day my little children, yeah. Yes, my little children would not be judged by the, the color of their skin, but the content of their character, where the black child and the white child can stand hand in hand and arm in arm. What he did was he gave them an image. Yeah. See, and that's, that's the power of rhetoric, because it, it doesn't deal in abstract concepts. It lays in your mind an image. Everybody has a child. Everybody understands a child and the image of Jesus put a little child in their midst. And so when you do that, you can galvanize a movement. You see, but if you just talk about abstract principles, you can't you can't rally people around those things. Well, and so many of the the causes, quote unquote, today are exclusionary. Um, yes, yes, tribal, and, not tribal. That's the wrong word. They're polarizing. Yeah, absolutely. 
where Dr. King's message was inclusive. Everyone was involved in, in what he was saying. His, his message was to everyone, not just to African Americans or not just to white America. It was, uh, it transcended that. And I'm well, not seeing that today on, on politics on either left or right. And that, that's, that's something that I think uh, Bishop Curry succeeded in projecting with his rhetorical style. He was not alienating. He was not pushing away. He was not even criticizing this royalty and this whole thing. But what he was, he was, he was speaking in kind of universals. He was speaking in the kinds of things that you'd have to be very evil to say no. There, there's got to be something really wrong. No, we shouldn't love. No, love doesn't make a difference. No, love can't transform anything. What, what are you saying? <laughs> you know, even if you've never read First Corinthians thirteen or First John, or John's Gospel for that matter, you, you intrinsically know this. You see, and and uh, so he wasn't using it as a polarizing moment. He was using it as a unifying moment, and I think his rhetoric was very, very. Well. We can learn a lot from that. I, I think we as preachers and as hearers of sermons and people who are trying to persuade our fellow man and and women um we can learn something from that kind of rhetoric well there was also uh an overall ambiance of the wedding ceremony itself i think that did indeed have a certain inclusiveness to it where you know on the one hand we were talking about the british royal family i mean <laughs> it doesn't get any more blue blood than that but then we have the bride, who's, who's mixed race, who's American. Uh, we have the uh, American uh, uh, preacher. We had uh, the black uh, choir group. We had, uh, I saw a lot of the people in the, uh, in the audience I recognized were American. Yeah. And that, I think, was a, was a very subtle and subliminal message there. Uh, oh, and, and very likely. I mean, I'm sure every seat was orchestrated for its camera shot. And, you know, you got to get Elton John in there and, and every, you know, every, every angle was worked out, but it was worked out well. Let's, let's, if you're going to have theatrics, let's admire good theatrics. Yeah, well, and I mean, compare it, it to uh, when Charles married Diana. I mean, that was just, that was blue blood. You, you, it was all. As you said, pasty-faced, you know. <laughs> well, as I understand William and Kate's wedding was, that was much more in the traditional vein, as no. would be expected of a first son and a second heir to the throne. Uh, this one is a little bit more playful, you know, so that at the end, I don't know, did you catch it at the end of the gospel choir singing Amen, and then this little light of mine, again, rocking it. Just It's just, you know, it's like, hey, any day you want to sing that in my church, you're welcome. I've, I'm throwing the doors open here. That was just so good. <laughs> Um, and one more prop. I, I've, I had this list of things I got to acknowledge as good. That cello player. Oh, fabulous. I'm screaming at the television for the, the TV news talking heads to shut up <laughs> and let me listen to the cello player because they're just blabbing on and on like they're trying to fill dead air. People, that air was not dead. <laughs> that was an I mean, that's you're looking at when you you potentially the next Yo Yo Ma if he keeps practicing and improving. I mean, he was good. He was really really good. Well, I suspect a wedding of that uh, particular nature would attract top top talent. 
Well, he uh, he's apparently quite known in Britain. I think he was a competitor on Britain's Got Talent. And he turned down, I discovered, a debut performance with the L.A. Philharmonic really? to do the wedding. So he, which isn't a bad move. I think he has a bigger audience at the, with the wedding than he does at the L.A. Phil. So not, not a bad career move. No, it's going to look very good in his resume. Oh, man. Uh, people will look him up and remember him long after that L.A. Phil concert is over. So, yeah, that was a good move. But he's very talented and just... That was a glorious touch. You notice they, they signed the certificate, the wedding uh, documents, uh, as kind of part of the overall ceremony because it is a, a state church. Yes. So those, those two actions are, are one action, where in our context, those are separate actions. Yeah, the, yeah, the two, even though we have the left-hand kingdom, you know, it, it's very separate from, from well, the right-hand kingdom. And yeah, or or I might I might put it in terms of temporal orders. The temporal order of the church is different than the temporal order of society and government. So we kind of keep those two um, at arm's length, distinct but not totally divided, and that kind of. And then we have, of course, Jefferson and the separation of church and state. But that's not Lutheran. That's Jefferson. <laughs> <laughs> oh, these get fun sometimes trying to explain these things, and it's. And you're right. You know, it, it is. This is a, another concept that we don't have in this country. Is that it, this was in di- this was actually an action of state, in the in the in the highest sense of it. As all weddings are, uh, weddings are under the purview. They're 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 first of all they're temporal. They they're neither married nor given in marriage in the resurrection. So marriage is a temporal estate. And it has its origins in the home, the consent of the heads of household, and also it's governed by the state, which incidentally had a huge interest in property. They, the state rarely cared much about the morality of its citizens so much as where the property was going, because you didn't want uh, French land to fall into English hands, you know, so you cared about who was married to whom and who inherited so that was that was the state's primary interest in in marriage, but nonetheless, the the state the state has a uh, a hand in it, and that's why we have wedding licenses. Our wedding licenses essentially are the 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 protest against. I like that moment in the traditional. The, so there's actually a moment where he says, "If anyone has an objection, let him speak now." Uh, who's going to object at a royal wedding? <laughs> I mean, yeah, actually, I got a few questions here, excuse me. And, and then, they, then he, asked, he, he asked the two of them if they have any reservations right there. Now, that's something I want to steal. Yeah. I, I, I've sometimes said that to couples. I said, you can back out of this right now. But the minute you say, I do, you're in it for, you're in it for life. Can we? Uh, can can you include that? I don't know the liturgy in the Lutheran marriage that well. Can you do that? Can you say? Oh, well, at some level, you can do anything you want. Should you do that? No, <laughs> you should. You should do what's in the book. You know, there's a good rule that says to uh, to read the black and do the red. Uh, the red is the rubrical instruction. So read the black, do the red, and get yourself out of this entirely. But the next time it comes up, you might actually suggest that we do have the consent of the parents. And uh, it would would not be, and we do have this kind of preliminary vow. Do you take this man? Do you take this woman? Blah, blah, blah. And that's kind of your time to say, hmm, gee, I'm not sure. Uh, In which case, 
it's all off. You can have the party, but we're not having a, <laughs> having a wedding here. But <laughs> I've never seen it happen. <laughs> Perhaps sometimes it should have. <laughs> I've had, I think, two or three fall apart in the pre-marriage preparation phase. Yeah. I've I've had I've had two or three I, I can't remember now but I've had two or three call it off before they ever got to that point and and I'm glad for them. I was going to say you know I'm glad that, for them. Absolutely, you know, much better. Is once the vows are taken, that's it. Yeah, I'd rather a little bit of a heartbreak than the heartbreak of divorce or bad marriage. So oh, sure, that's the truth. Bill, we're about to wrap up. Any final thoughts? Oh, I don't know. It's been a lively day. I I uh, I, I just I. I, I guess my final thought is dignity. If we could all approach our marriages, our weddings, with the kind of dignity, solemnity, and respect for tradition that you saw at that wedding, I think we'd go a long way toward restoring some sense of what marriage properly is. Absolutely. You've been listening to Let's Talk the Pastors, and today's guest pastor was Bill Swirla of Holy Trinity Lutheran Church in Hacienda Heights, California. If you have a question or you want to get involved in the program, well, write us at Let's Talk at KFUO.org. I want to give special thanks to the pastor emeritus, Fritz Bowie, for letting us use his recording of All Glory, Laud, and Honor as a theme song for Let's Talk, The Pastor is In. His music's available on Amazon.com. I'm host Kip Allen, wishing you all God's blessing. listening to The Pastor Is In, a weekly chance to chat with a pastor. Your support is vital for this program to continue. To learn about giving opportunities, call Mary at 314-996-1518. You can make a gift safe, secure, and easily online at kfuo.org. Thank you for listening and supporting The Pastor Is In on Worldwide KFUO.